0: It really annoys me, actually, when plant-based eaters say, well, I'm absolutely fine, you know, I I take a flaxseed oil supplement. Yeah, but that doesn't convert to
1: DHA in your brain. So, you know, be really, really careful. Liz Earle has been telling it like it is well before everyone else jumped on the wellness bandwagon. A pioneering British journalist and broadcaster who's prompted millions to think about what exactly they're eating or slapping on themselves, and not to blithely trust companies' claims. Along the way, she took a detour, launching her own eponymous range of products, which became a phenomenal business success. She's now back, calling out the BS and steering people to solutions rooted in actual evidence and also reflecting on her journey, where her drive comes from, who continues to inspire her and why hugs should be mandatory.
0: We've missed it so much these last few years and we've seen how detrimental it is not to have it. We know that on a physical level it's producing oxytocin,
1: it's those happy, feel-good chemicals. Liz Earle, hugs and all, is my guest for this episode of Brilliant Brains, with me, Tim Samuels. Brilliant Brains is brought to you by Karmacist, whose Harvard and Stanford scientists have just made plants even more powerful, using cutting-edge science to pinpoint the precise botanicals to face down the stresses of modern life, boost our moods, give us more energy and help keep us fighting fit. You can check out Karmacist's groundbreaking range of daily plant-powered supplements at karmacist.com. That's karmacist with a k.com. Right, back to Lizzo. Liz, we take wellness for granted. It's 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 everywhere. Um, but when you first began looking at this and you joined this morning, the sort of seminal ITV show, which was always the, the staple of if, if you had a day off school, you'd always, always watch it. And you were looking at things like beauty and ageing and wellness. Where was, where was the nation then? Was it, were we kind of, Have we just kind of dipped a toe into it? Was it kind of Jane Fonda and aerobics? Yeah,
0: it was a very different landscape. It's a really interesting question. It was around the time of, a little bit later than Jane Fonda, but it was definitely Rosemary Connolly and the hip and thigh diet and no fat, low fat, lots of step classes, lots of aerobic workouts for hours at a time, taking all the fat out of the diet. So, you know, it was quite a different landscape. And actually the nutritionists and these weird people called naturopaths and natural therapists who were beginning to come to the fore then were talking about the importance of high fat in the diet and you know all these these different nutritional therapies and the importance of nutrition almost for the first time for the the average layman anyway and I just it just connected you know it was that light bulb moment and For me, it just seemed to make such perfect sense, and I was so fascinated by it. I mean, I did lots of weird and wonderful things trying stuff out, but ultimately always feeling so much better and having that sense of empowerment that actually we can change how we look and feel by the way we live.
1: Uh, What what would would 80s Liz have been? (laughs) eating and doing or what, what What regimes were you going
0: through uh, well I was kind of brought up I was one of the, the first generation I guess to suffer um, ultra processed food so you know being brought up on things like birds angel delight and frosted sugared cereals in the morning which everyone thought was the, Lovely, yeah, the height yes. of luxury yeah real treat you know And I went completely counterculture, so I was a a vegan macrobiotic for nearly two years and and teetotal for a lot of that and didn't have many friends, obviously, as a result and almost no social life. And now I've kind of swung back completely the other way. So I I did put myself through a lot of different experiments and, and trials and juice fasts and all sorts of weird things, you know, started to grow my own wheat grass. I had a kombucha scoby in the cupboard, you know, 30 odd years ago. And and it's quite interesting now seeing it come to, to the front of mind and, and people talking about gut health. We weren't talking about gut health, to be fair, back then. We didn't really know what it was doing. We just implicitly knew that there was something that it did
1: for us that was good and made us feel good. Mm. And, and were you seen as a as a bit of a weirdo <laughs> at, at the time. I'm you know, thinking yes. about sort of eight, 80s Britain, you know, when it was hyper-consumerist mm-hmm. and uh, you you were there gr- growing um, wheatgrass and and, um, and scobies. kombucha yeah. scobies. Pe- people must have thought you were a bit odd.
0: Yes, I, I I think so. I mean, I did balance it with with a lot of kind of conventional stuff as well. But yeah, there was just, I, I think there was this growing sense That something needed to change and that despite all the advances in modern medicine and, you know, amazing discoveries being made, that actually as a nation, we were getting sicker and fatter and and less happy in ourselves and looking for ways that we could fix ourselves and and do things that were safe and, and cheap. And that, you know, for me... As you know, kind of a, a young working mother at the time was really important—not having a huge amount of time or money, but actually wanting stuff mm. that really made a difference. And like you, I, I came from a journalistic background. I started my career working in magazines before the internet. I mean, my kids look at me now and they say, "Yeah, but but, Mama, how did you know anything?" And I said, well, you know, I used to go to these things called libraries and there's an amazing one in London called the British Library and you can pull out every research paper and you can sit and you can look at it and they would say, God, that must have taken so long. I said, yeah, it did. And, you know, I used to do that old-fashioned thing of, of talking to people, you know, actually ringing somebody up, the author of a study, and saying, you know, I've seen this published and and, you know, could you talk me through it? And very often, in fact, the author would say... Actually, what was reported in the press wasn't what we found. And that really mm. taught me never, you always get to go back to the source, never to rely on, on headlines. And that's, I think, part yes. of the problem today is that we, we're surrounded by misinformation and, and lazy journalism with people who don't either understand the studies or don't go back and don't bother to talk to the source. Are,
1: are there any trends that are particularly uh, loathsome <laughs> oh, to you? Oh, my goodness, how long the, have you got? You look, I think, that is, well, I mean, what would, you, what would your... Um, Forgive my northerners and what would what would be the biggest bollocks Uh, um that you that you get that you see advertising, Oh God, stop it.
0: Um I think that there continues to be this pushing of low fat and a fear of fat. And, you know, my very first book 30 years ago was called Vital Oils, and I have not changed my stance. You know, I nearly got sued by a big margarine manufacturer back in the day for daring to suggest that hydrogenated trans fats could potentially be dangerous and cause some health issues. And now, of course, you get things labelled, you know, no trans fats, and no, of course, we don't hydrogenate. So I think for me, getting over this fear of fat, you know, fat is our friend and it's, it's about having healthy fats. It's the right fats. And, you know, fats comprise most of our brain and we need particular fats like DHA, for example, and omega-3. And it really annoys me actually when plant-based eaters say, well, I'm absolutely fine. You know, I, I take a flaxseed oil supplement. Yeah, but That doesn't convert to DHA in your brain. So, you know, be really, really careful. You know, you do need to have, if you're not going to have a fish oil or eat fish, then you at least need to have an algae supplement that is actually going to get used by the brain tissues and for midlife women as well i mean most of my audience have kind of grown with me a lot of women say yeah i used to watch you back in the day on this morning when i was at home you know on maternity leave or breastfeeding or whatever and now of course they're all you know midlife women and things change and hormonally things change and that's the worst time in your life to cut fat out because we need good cholesterol because it's the building block of of happy hormones so I guess whenever I see mm-hmm. recipes that call for low fat you know I'm I'm just scrubbing them out and writing full fat lots of greek yogurt come on Yes
1: absolutely I did a on my BBC podcast All Hail Kale we did an episode on how fat got unfairly mm-hmm. demonized it was in the wake of president eisenhower's heart attack when the american medical establishment were trying to come up with a reason for that and fat was demonised unfairly and it stretches all the mm-hmm. way back to then. So, yeah, I, 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 yeah absolutely. Yeah, a long way.
0: And, and not, so not, you, only, um... sorry, not only demonising fat, but really putting the um, taking the blame away from sugar, you know that's that, that's yes, my other yes, other bugbear and you know people are like Ansel keys and you know all the skewed science that that said you know which it sounds reasonable doesn't it you eat fat you lay fat down in your arteries you have a heart attack but actually the body doesn't work like that and it's about reducing insulin spikes and and keeping the sugars and the carbs low so those those i guess are my two two main pillars of of um, of the b word
1: yeah absolutely yes we did the show as the um the rise and fall of Tony the Tiger. We told it through his life story <laughs> right. and uh, how how he got away with yes. murder for decades. It's interesting that you 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 cottoned onto these trends very very early on. Was there something perhaps that was sort of seeded in your upbringing or your childhood that that led you towards wellness or perhaps a sort of a sort of discerning journalism? It's, it's sort of interesting to know where where your drive comes from.
0: I do have drive. And and I think, you know, maybe that's a genetic thing. I guess that's why I'm prepared to be a risk taking entrepreneur and, you know, place all my money on red and and do something that I I believe in. And I guess historically, my father was an admiral in the Navy, but he came from the engineering side, which was kind of looked down on. And he had to really struggle and push against the grain to, to get to where he did get to. And, you know, he had that real kind of, well, I'll show you kind of attitude. And I think mm. possibly I've inherited that. He was a great plantsman. You know, he used to go away to sea and then he'd come home and have refuge in the garden. And he loved plants that do things. So, you know, he wasn't so interested in growing flowers for my mom. He was much more interested in growing the most prolific beans um, or the best head of lettuces. And, you know, I would spend time with him connecting in the garden and he would talk about Plants and and you know take great pride in that. So I guess that side of things, you know, also came from a love of growing things and and being using food as function. You know, having having functional things growing in the garden. But yes, I I do. Maybe I inherited it from him. I have a, a strong sense of social justice and injustice. And when I see things that are wrong or people who are being wronged, I I am straight up there on my soapbox and flag waving and i've been involved in lots of campaigns over the years when
1: when i think that there is injustice going on Mm. it's interesting that you know you talk about your father having a sort of an engineering background and the approach that you seem to have is is it's sort of similar you're quite sort of forensic in the way that you will deconstruct a product and look at the ingredients and look at the scientific processes behind it perhaps perhaps more so than other journalists I, I, I know and work with, there's a kind of maybe some sort of engineering maybe. sensibility to what you do. Yeah,
0: maybe. I mean, I, I, I do love looking at the labels. You know, it's, uh, I actually founded one of the first pressure groups I founded, gosh, must be, I guess maybe 30, 20, 25, 30 years ago, it was called FLAG, which was the food labeling agenda. And we took a petition with over a million signatures to Downing Street. And it was about, it was campaigning for clearer and more meaningful labelling. And it was at a time when they were trying to slip GM uh, ingredients into foods without it being labelled. And uh, my point is it always has to be about choice. You know, it's all about informed information, you know, whether that's informed consent, whether that's informed purchasing power, you know, we need to know what we're buying. And I'm, I'm, I'm big on labeling and having worked in the beauty industry where everything has to be really, I mean, forensically, ridiculously detailed in, in the labels, some would say. And yet we don't apply that to what we eat and drink. You know, my, my kids, for example, if they buy an Alcopop with all the brightly colors and all the sugars and everything else in it, you know, designed to be very attractive, addictive, you look at the label, you have no idea what's in it. Absolutely not at all. And yet you're mm. you're drinking this stuff. It's going into your system, and yet you buy a pot of face cream, and even the tiniest molecule has to be listed. You know where where is the sense in that? You know, and that comes from political lobbying, and I think
1: that's just plain wrong. So I guess you had a, a journalistic streak. Did you have a sort of early entrepreneurial tendencies <laughs> as well? Um, I'm not sure. Were you were you selling your dad's? <laughs> Carrots in the local beans. market for a markup.
0: Yes, I, yeah. I, I mean I, I did try and make sort of you know face packs out of yogurt and cucumber and rose water out of mouldy flower petals, which didn't work. Um, but I think it came from from a need. Actually, it was. I mean, I, I started as a journalist, so I started not not in a commercial world at all. You know, just just turning up to write for magazines and being paid and being freelance, and. It was, I guess, in the early '80s when, or mid '80s, when a lot of entrepreneurs started. And if, if you think about the changing landscape, we, you know, online suddenly happened. We had pioneers of, of things in clothing, like the Next Catalog. I don't know whether you remember that, but this, you know, you'd pay for this. I do. I Huge do, yes. book. Of, of clothes and, and you could actually, you know, go through it and then you could ring up and order something and, you know, the thrill of that. And then you had all these other brands starting, you know, the White Company and Bowdoin. And, you know, I remember talking to a friend of mine who founded Green and Black's Chocolate and she was a, a fellow a beauty journalist. And I said, you know, Gawain, why are you doing that? And she said, well, it's it's so lovely to produce something tangible that people really like and, you know, rather than just something that people read. I thought, actually, there's, there's real strength in that. So I, I think that in kind of encouraged me to, to be a bit more entrepreneurial and think about
1: making things rather than just writing words. A botanical quickie from our sponsor. Did you know saffron is, pound for pound, more expensive than gold? More impressively, and, frankly, useful to me, in clinical trials, saffron has been shown to raise levels of serotonin, the happy hormone – as luck would have it, Karmacist feature a patented form of pure saffron in their mood formulation, which is what gets my gloomy backside out of bed in the morning. Go to Assist, Karmacist, K-A-R-M-A-C-I-S-T, Karmacist.com for your mood boosting saffron. Was there a moment when you just thought, yeah, I'm going I'm going to go from being Commentator, journalist, to creating Lizelle products. Yeah.
0: Um, well, I think two things. Uh, I was writing books, so that is a tangible product which which I love, and I, and I still love that. I wish there were more hours in the day to, to sit and research. I love nothing more than writing, you know, seventy thousand words on a, one particular subject. But it was actually mm-hmm. my girlfriend's idea. She and I had been great friends for for a long time. And she spotted this elusive gap in the market back in the day for skincare produced by somebody who was a known name, because at the time, all the sort of names were, well, frankly, dead. You know, people like Helena Rubinstein and mm. Elizabeth Arden and Estee Lauder. And she said, you know, come on, Liz, you know, we can do this together. She had a marketing background and worked you know, with the supply chain for the beauty industry. And I obviously knew about products and plants and had quite a clear idea of, of what would work on the skin. And to be really honest with you, Tim, my first reaction was no, uh, it was I, I can't do this. This is far too commercial. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an independent commentator and writer and I don't want to be a gamekeeper turned poacher and she said no no no, come on we you know we can do it it's just going to be a side hustle it's not going to take up too much of your time She's kind of famous last words which I still remind her of occasionally when I see her because it just became this runaway train and I think any brand founder you know listening you, you know you, you get that moment and it, it's amazing because it means you've got a hit but boy does it become all-consuming it just takes over everything and so all my writing and tv work everything just went to one side and I spent 15 years, you know, developing face creams and and beauty products and launching them globally, which is a massive learning. And you learn a completely different skill set and you learn about responsibilities and risk and, you know, like you've never done before. But for me, ultimately, it was never really truly where I wanted to be, which is, you know, why I wasn't that sad to sell the brand and move on.
1: I think things look easier in retrospect. Were there moments when you just thought this is never going to work?
0: I think we, we built it really slowly. And I always say that now. It's still, you know, I, I, you know, don't try and fast track. And, you know, that would be if you ever wanted any entrepreneurial advice, then that would be, you know, my motto is always you, you crawl, you walk and you run. And then if you're lucky, you, you, you sprint to the end. But you've got to spend an awful lot of time crawling around on the floor. And I think in today's world, so much of what we see on social media, it looks like an instant hit, you know, things go viral or things are expected to happen really fast. But I think to have depth and longevity, you need to build it slow to, to build it strong. And we did just that. You know, we launched back in the day when people would cut out coupons from magazines and put them, send them off in the post with a check. You know, so it was a way of, of building a brand slowly. And we launched on QVC, which I hosted, which was easy for me because I had a TV background. So that that worked really well. We became their biggest seller, you know, quite quickly. But ultimately, it's down to having a good product. You know, it doesn't matter how many layers of marketing and spin and fancy packaging and beautiful pictures. If your product doesn't work and isn't loved, it won't be repeat purchased. And the key to any brand, obviously, is is
1: repeat purchase. So everything needs
0: to be focused on what's inside the tin and not
1: how you present it. Mm. And you, you sold the, the Lizelle Beauty Company, I think, in, in 2010. Yeah for an undisclosed Uh, sum. Uh, It's it's now the moment that you disclose that I
0: can't. I'm sorry, honey. It's NDAs (laughs) and all that, yeah. And actually, it's quite interesting because, um, Uh, you know, people say, you know, you sold your company. And, you know, it was my name on it. And, you know, so it was always assumed to be just me. But Kim and I very much built it together. You know, it was very much a dynamic team of two. And by the time we sold, we had other, you know, stakeholders and people involved. So it wasn't solely my decision, Mm. but uh, or also my gain either financially. But, um, you know, it did mean that I could then go back to my absolute passion, uh, which, of course, by then had kind of come almost full circle because I was in the enviable position, I think, fortunate position in that I could go back and write about wellness and well-being and all these things that I'd been doing 30 or more years Mm. ago um, with a bit of wisdom, perhaps, and a bit of insight as to what was just a passing fad and what actually was, was something a bit more credible. So that's that's what mm. I do now, and that's that, I think, is my, my true passion and, and my true life's work.
1: Uh, I'm interested to know, how are women who've, who've made a few quid treated differently?
0: Oh, it's interesting. I, I guess it depends who, who you're talking about. I mean, for me, my life didn't change at all. It just meant that I actually owned my house, you know. I had the deeds rather than the bank, and... Um, you know, I, I, mm. I drove the same 15-year-old Peugeot car around because I just couldn't think of what else to drive, frankly. And it kind of, it worked. So why change it? And I, I'm not the kind of person that wants to have a super yacht or a Gulfstream. I mean, not not that I could afford that anyway. But, you know, so life didn't really change. Um but I guess it's made me a bit more. But did, confident.
1: did people's attitude towards you change?
0: Maybe, may, maybe in the in the beginning. But I think because I didn't change, you know, and, and I didn't move house, and I didn't look any different. I didn't start, you know, wearing really flash clothes or, or you know just being crazy with things. You know, I started a charity. I I'd, I'd bought my brother a home. You know, there were the kind of things that went on behind the scenes that that it was kind of business as usual and. And I, I think that's that's the way to do it. Really, is is just is just to stay real. Because at the end of the mm. day, you know, it, you know, money doesn't make you happy. And I know it's all very well to say that when you've got some. Um, but believe me, you know, I've I've been there. I've been there on both sides of of the coin. And actually, what we've learned, I think, more than anything, coming through these last couple of years, is that health is our wealth. You know, you look at people like Steve Jobs. Mm. You know, one of the richest, most plugged in, clued up people on the planet and he couldn't save himself and i think people are realizing that that we we you know the body that we have is the only place that we have to live and we need to protect it and invest in
1: that far more than anything else but, you, but you, i sort of cut you off before you mm. were saying you, you felt like it gave you a bit more confidence though
0: i guess so i guess i mean it's made me more um more ambitious perhaps in some ways you know, I've I invested in my publishing company, so that, you know, that was, was quite a cost and and hiring my staff and building websites and podcasts and printing and and I and I'm prepared to do that because I believe in it and take the long view. And that has given me more confidence. Um, you know, I hope it doesn't fail, and it's it's it doesn't seem like it will. But it's you know, it's it's still quite a long journey. You know, I've kind of gone back into startup mode after all these years, and a whole new different set of skills to learn. Because when I was at the beauty company, there was no such thing as social media, and now it's the one thing that seems to drive everything. So there's an awful lot to, to learn and invest in, in a different way, but that's
1: what keeps everything fresh and interesting, isn't it? You were very candid about, um, going through a divorce mm-hmm. in, in lockdown, um, which, which really can't have been an awful no, lot it wasn't of fun. was really. <laughs> um, um, I, I know from successful female friends of mine that they sometimes find it hard to attract the right sort of bloke. Um, men might be interested for the wrong mm-hmm. reasons, or perhaps a little bit emasculated actually when they meet a successful yeah. woman um do you find that well the, to be the the, case? The,
0: going back into the kind of dating world is is going to be interesting you know as you say i got divorced during lockdown and uh, and we lived under the same roof you know for like 18 months quite happily i have to say um but uh so now the world is opening up again, you know, it'll be really interesting to, to see. And I'm not kind of, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, do I go on a, on a, do I sign up to an app? I mean, what, what happens with these things? So I guess ask me again in, in six months and I can give you a better answer, but I hope that, that men don't feel emasculated and intimidated. Um, because there is a you know, a shared humanity and a vulnerability to everybody. And, it's you know i don't want to be alone forever but at the same time i'm not i'm not kind of desperate uh, I, I think you know coming out of a relationship you realize that actually it's it's better to be alone and happy with yourself than be with somebody because you're mm. afraid of being alone and i think too many women do do mm. fear that and that's why they stay in relationships that perhaps aren't the right ones
1: absolutely absolutely uh, we'll talk in six months, and um, in the meantime, I, I apologise I apologize for all the rubbish men you might meet along the way and hope you find someone who, Thank um, you. who who is confident in their own skin and um, is, is happy to be around a successful woman. But um, I, I suppose you were alluding to, you know, one of the great joys of, of where you've got to in life is that ability to, to give back, mm. and you, you've you got your own uh, charity Live Twice, yeah. which which focuses on second chances i thought that was a really interesting <laughs> rationale what is it is there something about a society where we, we don't tend to give people a second chance that you felt needed addressing
0: yeah maybe maybe you know my work has taken me all over the world but in particular to developing countries back in the day i was sourcing botanicals from east africa going on research trips to malawi kenya tanzania southern uganda uh, southern Sudan and you come across the most needy people people that have had no advantage in life at all and you know there but for the grace of God go I you know we are just an accident of, of where mm. we're born and, and how you know what how we arrive in this world and so it's about it's not necessarily kind of redemption it's, it's not saying you know oh you've been really bad you can have a second chance it's about offering opportunity and and keeping that remit really broad I didn't want the charity to get kind of pigeonholed so it could be opportunity to education or health care or skills training um, or advocacy or, you know, lots, lots of, of different things. And I do feel that it's, it's important to give back. You know, that whole sense of purpose, people working in wellness talk about that all the time as being incredibly important for mental health. Feeling that you're making a difference, that actually you're, you know, you're part of the solution and not, not part of the problem. And I wanted to have a bit of a legacy, perhaps a bit of kind of future planning there. That you know, I wouldn't just be known for having made a great face cream, but actually, you know, that I'd left an impact in in a different way on on the planet.
1: Is, is there anyone that you you think of through the charity that you you feel perhaps most proud of having? had that impact with?
0: Oh, gosh, many. I mean, we've, we've helped individuals, um, you know, women, for example, who've gone through the most appalling domestic violence and FGM and, and you know, hideous things <clears throat> happening to them, who then um, are able to be given some money and some skills training to buy sewing machines and then set up in little shops and then they make enough to support their kids through education and have a bit of, of self-respect and, and a bit of protection, you know, physical protection from what's happening in the world around them, and connecting with real people, you know, real real stories when you know the individuals. I and mean, I mean, we're a tiny, tiny charity, so it, it's just a, a small impact. But every life that's helped is 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 a difference, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. So, so you've got your foundation, thirty-five books, five kids, two exes, an <laughs> MBE magazine, shows, jewelry range. What's what's the itch? that's still left to scratch
0: oh gosh so many so many i'm, I'm covered in itchy things
1: i think you might have agreed yeah exactly
0: i need to go back to my roots or one of them um what's left gosh i do you know i think it's more of the same it's just amplifying you know i i love my podcast i love things like this because it's all about content I love the spoken word because, you know, if I'm doing telly, I have to worry about what my hair looks like and, you know, does my bum look big and is, you know, is my face shiny in the Hmm. light? And, you know, and it just is a distraction. Um, But if you can really focus on content and and, and what you say rather than what it looks like when you're saying it. So I'd I'd love to grow that side of my business. And and I've got a couple of other little entrepreneurial brand ideas floating around that um, now I've got the kind of the... The, a little bit more headspace I have to say the last couple of years have been have been taken up kind of physically and emotionally with having to think about other things and deal with other things but I'm hoping for a bit of clarity now maybe
1: maybe a few new brands who knows lizzo we'd like to end with a couple of quick fire questions if you are tomorrow waking up and finding that you are global dictator and your sole mission is to try and improve people's levels of happiness and well-being, what would your first act be?
0: Wow. I think I would instigate compulsory hugging. You know, I think hugging is... We've missed it so much these last few years and we've seen how detrimental it is not to have it. We know that on a physical level it's producing oxytocin, it's those happy, feel-good chemicals, it's connecting us with our fellow man... And it makes you feel good, and it's free, and everybody can do it. You know, even if you're on your own, actually, you can self-hug. You can wrap your arms around yourself and have a bit of an effect. But hopefully, you know, minimum, mandatory, three hugs a day. The more, the better. Absolutely. Let's go for it.
1: Fabulous. And who's who's your brilliant brain? You know, Is there somebody over the years that you've taken particular inspiration from?
0: I think the person at the moment who has a brilliant brain, um, whose brain is actually quite damaged and leads, by example, is my eldest daughter, Lily, who has a a long-term autoimmune issue which causes chronic pain. And we're trying to fix her. And that's, I guess, part of my drive at Lazar Wellbeing is who can I talk to who might ultimately help fix my daughter and then others in turn. But she lights up a room when she walks in. She has a lightness about her and a very special energy, even though I know with hidden disability just how much she's suffering inside. And, and she inspires me every, every second of the day. I want to be
1: more like my daughter. That's a, a really lovely place to leave it. I wish you and your family the best of luck and um, continued success. Lizelle, thanks Thank so you. much. A big thanks to Liz Earle, still fighting the fight for all of us. To hear a dozen more episodes of Brilliant Brains, including Robin Sharma, the monk who sold his Ferrari author, explain why getting up at 5am can revolutionise your life, go to karmacist.com, the show's sponsor. Thanks also to Nature Boy for the music. From me, Tim Samuels, that's this episode of Brilliant Brains.